And we have a problem today that many of the incumbent organizations, the board, are 60 or over. Now, I'm unusual. I'm a 60-year-old who studied computer science age 15. I think it's very hard for a company being disrupted to face the issues and make decisions, strategic decisions, operational decisions, without having at least some cursory understanding of how the stuff works. Otherwise, their judgment on what is or is not possible when someone presents a proposal to them is poor. But it isn't the technology that's important. It's the attitude of the management team to understand they really won't know how they're going to deliver their current service in five years. And that therefore, they're going to have to learn as much as they can. They can't rely on the young people coming up. They themselves, who are the decision makers, need to be open enough to learn enough so that they can judge the proposals that are being sent to them, that are being presented before them. If the rate of change is fast, schools are not the right place to go. When the processes are settled, when the processes are understood, then I think a, a university or a school is a good place to go. Uh, when it's something that's rapidly changing, you have to teach yourself and you have to go into industry straight away. I think learning by doing is really the very best way. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Sparker podcast in which I have the privilege to tap into the wisdom and explore the mindset of amazing people to make it accessible to everybody. You just heard a couple of snippets from my conversation with Ian Charles Stewart, the very diversely talented and curious lifelong learner who most famously founded the leading magazine in tech and innovation that you all know, Wired Magazine. In our extensive conversation, we talked about how all the economy businesses and organizations in general can make the jump to the next economy and how to learn new things along the way. Furthermore, he shared his assessment of the rising power of China as someone who's been living there for a decade. Since Ian has been doing so many different things in his life and is very open-minded, we also touched on many other topics. But find out for yourself what they are, and I hope you will enjoy this conversation. So, Ian Charles Stewart, it's a it's a great pleasure to have you on the show on the Sparker podcast. Um, and when I looked at your biography, I would say it's a biography and not a career because there are so many things going on. Um, I saw that you um, were an athlete. Uh, you were obviously um, very famous also for founding Wired Magazine. You were a serial entrepreneur, mostly tech and media related, became an investor. Then at some point in time, you went to China, became the coach of the America's Cup sailing team of China. So there's so many things happening. You were a photographer, uh, traveling Asia, apparently. And um, I love the fact that there are so many things that you did uh, in your life. Uh, and I wonder, do you feel like you ever had a normal job in your life? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me, Christian. It's nice to be here. Um, a normal job. I did once. I did once. Um, and it was partly because I felt um, I should see what it was like, but also because it was at a time in my life when I'd had a relatively um, free-flow adventure style life for 10 years or so, and I needed to figure out what I was going to do now that I thought I was growing up, although I still haven't grown up. So this was just after my MBA here at IMD where we're doing the interview. Um, 
the, the theory of the, the process was that you did an MBA so that you could decide what you wanted to do with the rest of your life and, 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 and move in new directions. Well, in my case, it was to have my first ever employed position. Um, and I was lucky that um, because the head of the school at that time took pity on me, thinking that an out-of-work photographer was not going to find anything interesting, um, he wrote to four uh, chief executives of four large media organizations around the world and uh, it was very kind of them. They all invited me in for discussions and, and um, uh, talked about positions. Um, the role I chose, uh, partly because it was based in the UK rather than the two options that were in the US, and partly because um, I liked the products that this company had at the time. So we're talking about Pearson PLC and their ownership of the Financial Times, um, Addison Wesley and, and um, Penguin Publishing Books, The Economist newspaper at that time. Uh, part of BSB, a satellite broadcasting operation. Uh, they just, I think, as I entered the company, sold the film group. So it had a lot of the elements of media that I enjoyed as I grew up and that I thought I was interested in, where I thought I could add some value as a, as a business person who understood tech and finance. Um, but that was a regular job. It, it lasted four and a half years. It was extraordinarily informative. I learned um, why I probably wasn't um, ideal for large organizations because uh, whatever position you're in, unless you're the chief executive, and even then, you have to fulfill the criterias of a um, a box that, that you're placed in. Um, you can't go beyond that box without offending people or affecting people around you too much, um, and therefore you're constrained. And the way I've run my life, managed um, what I do, I, I tend to go across boundaries all the time. But I still lasted four and a half years and thoroughly enjoyed it um, and learned a great deal about many things, not the least of which was what criteria companies like Pearson and other large media conglomerates had for purchasing companies. My intention was always to sell companies, to build my own organizations as I'd done when I was 25 with the book publishing company and find people who would buy it. So I felt that by understanding how a large media organization thought, uh, I would know how better to sell the product that was the company I wanted to create. You understood the workings of the inside of um, one of your Potential buyers or potential partners. Yes, it's important. I think I think I'd done nothing but small companies and things on my own. I think it's um, uh, and I was the opposite of pretty much everybody else in the MBA program in my year, um, uh, and I wanted to understand what large companies were like. Whereas most, of, in fact, almost everybody that was in the MBA program with me had come from a large organization, and some of them were thinking about being entrepreneurial. I'd come the other way. Okay, and so you experienced the um, uh, the life of a, of an employee, and then also obviously with all the other adventures that you had, um, the other kind of lifestyle. Uh, what would you say are kind of the the good, the bad, and the ugly of um, those two different lifestyles? Well, first of all, I think that normative statements about something being good or bad really depend on the individual, right? So. Um, I was careful in my statement about um, large organizations. It doesn't suit someone like me. Um, and I think, I think a lot of entrepreneurs who um, create new products and services do so by breaking rules and breaking boundaries. They go across threshold. They try things that haven't been tried before. They do things a bit differently from what's been done before. That attitude doesn't fit well within an organization that hires you to do one job well. You can innovate within a space, but you can't go too far because it might upset everything around you. So I think for someone like me, large organizations, I thought that was a wonderful experience. It was a great four and a half years. I'm not going to do it again. Mm -hmm. um, and I knew that then. Um, uh, so, uh, but it depends on the person. I have friends who don't like the uncertain nature of entrepreneurship. I have friends who don't like the perceived uncertain nature of the income stream. 
Although I would suggest today that people can just as easily be fired from their jobs as um, lose their lose their company, uh, much more so than say in my father's generation. Um, but certainly there is this perception of uncertainty that exists within the entrepreneurship world that it's that it's more uncertain and more risky than working in a large organization. Um, and so uh, your perception of the world and how you wish to sit in it will decide which you do. Um, um, so part of my answer that you were looking for is implicit in my in my answers. I like the freedom that exists within entrepreneurship. I like the 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 fact that you can make mistakes and it, no one's going to wrap you on your knuckles except yourself. I'm my worst critic. I think most entrepreneurs are. Um, I think that there's the um, opportunity to um, uh, decide who you want to work with because you get to choose them. You hire them. I think it's um, um, fun to be able to play with any combination of things you want. No one's setting the rules. And all of that appeals to me. On the other hand, in large organizations, you have support structures. right? If you need some a report done, you can find someone to do it. If you um, need to hire an office, there's no problem. The company has a reputation. It has a, um, a balance sheet. No one's going to object to them hiring an office. You try to hire your first office as an entrepreneur. They want you to sign your life away with guarantees. So there's lots of things about being in a large organization which are convenient and comfortable. Um, and, and many people prefer that, um, whereas I, I've always liked solving those problems myself. I, from what you're saying, two follow-up questions come to my mind that I think are very interesting. Uh, firstly, I would like to kind of find out or get an idea of what your, let's say, personal process was of finding out what you were the right fit for. I could imagine that that didn't happen overnight. There were maybe several stages to find out um, where is your place to shine or to, to work the most effectively. That's one question. And the other question is, you experienced both. And did you had kind of opportunities or situations where you were able to marry the best of both worlds? So those are the two questions that came to my mind. I don't think the process is over. I think at some stage, I really would like to know what my place is in the world, and I'm still trying to work it out. Um, I just had my 60th birthday um, um, a couple of months ago, um, and I can tell you that inside, you still feel like a kid. Um, I tell my children that there's no such thing as adults. The outside changes, you look different, your skin gets craggy, and um, your body starts making it more difficult to jump the three meters or whatever it was you used to be able to jump. Um, uh, But inside, you really feel the same. You've made, you've learned some things, you've gained some things, but you really feel the same. So I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. I still don't. Um, in essence, though, the answer is in uh, in the question. Um, everything that we do in life, uh, everything, whether it's in our social context or our business context, whether it's unexpected or planned, helps us learn about people in general. And everything we do is interactions with people. Um, every time I get involved with someone for anything, whether it's on a volleyball team or in a company or um, at, a, at a social event or at a business event, um, I learn about other people and I also learn about myself. And I think we all do. And so uh, the process is something that happens over time. I also think it changes. Not because necessarily you change, because I don't think we do change as much as we would like. Um, hopefully we develop, but um, a lot of us stay um, uh, very much as we were when we were younger. But every new experience brings us new information, and it brings, for me at least, things I want to try. So uh, when I decide to get into a project, um, I do it based on two things. And by the way, it's never because I think the thing will be profitable. Um, it's because the people I would do it with interest me, because I think they'd be fun to work with, because I think they're good at what they do, and I'd like to learn how they do what they do. 
um, because um, the interaction we have is something which stimulates me and makes me interested in doing more. Um, and also um, because I think it would be something that I would gain something from. Now, again, I'm not talking about profits here. I'm talking about learning something or going somewhere or doing something I haven't done before. I like doing new things. If there is one thing I think that characterizes pretty much my entire life, it's I like trying new things. I like, I like the experience of discovery, fear, um, success, um, achievement that comes from that. And I don't mind the failure that comes with it. Uh, I've been lucky enough that I've had more successes than failures in the things that I've chosen to do. And that, I guess, helps me try new things. I think if you're young and you try new things and you hit three times with failures, that might put you off for a number of years. I've been lucky that I've, I've managed to do lots of things that I enjoyed. So the people and ex an experience that I would like to go through, um, those are the things that allow me to make the decision. Uh, has it helped me decide who I am now? Yes, it's helped me understand now um, as I said earlier, that I'm not really suited to being in the middle of a large organization. I think I might be okay running a large organization, although I'm still more of a maverick than a traditional corporate CEO. And the organizations I have run have been smaller and more dynamic because they had to be because of the industries they were in. Um, but I think being a normal employee has never been something I was very good at um, because of the constraints. So I think that I think that process of meeting people and trying things is is what um, allows me to continue um, uh, doing the things I do. On the second question, marrying both, um, I'm not sure. I, I think that the characteristics of a large organization that, that make it function, um, so what happens with a large organization, uh, someone invents a product or a process, they work out what their target market is, and then they work out where they're going to get their supplies from to create that product or service, and then they have to build an operating process to get from um, um, origins of product or service through the customer, and then also the post-customer feedback and development of new products and services. When you build this process, you hire people into it. You buy machines. You hire or buy buildings to fit things in. In other words, you create structure. That structure over time becomes embedded because you get better at it, and you try to make it more efficient, cost less money, um, uh, be more impactful in, in each part of the value chain you're trying to develop. But it also means it becomes calcified. It's very hard to change those things. Yep. You've got building and people and processes. It's very hard to change. Mm -hmm. I think those sorts of things are almost the antithesis of what you need at the beginning when you're still trying to work out what you want to do. And I think at some point, these large structures, um, they want to retain themselves. They want to keep themselves alive. So, to reinvent themselves. Yeah. Not so easy to do. And, and I guess, so um, thank you for providing me the answer to your question, which is the one place that I've seen that, that you might be able to get um, a marriage of um, big business with innovation is when a company is in trouble. Because mm -hmm. that's when it's comfortable in this structure, it doesn't need to move. It doesn't need to change. So it stays the same and rejects anything which tries to change it. At that point, someone like me is not a good fit. When it's in trouble, as many companies are today, facing disruption for all sorts of reasons, obviously the digital disruption being one, but there are many reasons. Um, at that point, they realize there's something wrong and they realize they're struggling to change. At that point, someone like me coming in and maybe helping, I think is fun. Um, at, lately, um, I've been someone who spent most of my life um, building companies doing new things or social ventures doing new things or charities doing new things. Lately, at my stage in life, I have enough gray hair so that other people with gray hair come to me and say, how do we do this? 
you've done something like this. How do we do that? And so I've lately been involved with more companies that are disruptees, helping them think about how they might change. What's interesting about this process to me, and that's why I'm not sure it's a good marriage yet, is that it's not so difficult for someone like me to help them understand what it is they probably shouldn't do and what it is they probably should try. The trick is making them do it. Those structures that I described earlier that look like uh, a physical process also have people who are stuck in the ways they've done things for 20 years. And it's very hard to have them genuinely do it differently. All their instincts, all their, all their body memory, all, the, all their, all their um, uh, work interaction memory is based upon a set of processes they've been building for 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. It's just hard to change. Uh, you, you, you learn things by, you know, just like a structure, the, the processes that people go through also become calcified. It's not just the buildings and the machinery, it's the people themselves. And I'm finding that, I'm finding that interesting. Now, is it a good marriage? I don't know. But at times of change, at times of critical change, when a company's in trouble, that's when some of the things I do work in large organizations, and I quite enjoy that. Mm-hmm. Well, what you're um, referring to is um, also the, the general theme of um, all the economy businesses having the, the, the need to jump to a new economy business. So to just paraphrase it very generally. Um, and I think I hear out of your, um, your answer that you think that the, um, the mental flexibility um, of people is um, one of the crucial aspects if, if a company or business can make the jump from old to the new. Um, do you see other... Um, factors that are crucial that a company needs to pay attention to uh, when they want to be able to make the jump? I, I think there are many things. I think, um, <clears throat> uh, uh, first of all, I, 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 it's worth saying that companies have natural life cycles. You can't save all of them. Right? Um, uh, there was something, I was listening to CNBC the other day, and, and someone mentioned that uh, I think it's 40% of the um, members of the S&P 500 from 10 years ago no longer exist. That's a massive number. Um, so uh, I, I think there are natural life cycles for companies and some things it's too hard to change. The conditions under which one might change, that you might get a company to change, mental flexibility, yes, but not just on the part of the management team, but also the people in the company. If, if it's a company that's been working in a dynamic environment, so they've constantly had to develop new products and services anyway, at least at some point in their development phase, that makes it easy for them to adjust now. Um, I think also it's a question of, of um, how well the organization is managed. In an organization which is being disrupted by information technology change, one of the most common subjects that's in the news these days, um, and it's, again, it's only one layer of change impacting companies, but it is the one that people seem to talk about most uh, because of the success of some of the disruptors like um, Airbnb and Uber and others. Um, I think um, uh, in this environment, you can't get away from needing a number of people within the organization who understand technology. And we have a problem today that many of the incumbent organizations, the board, are 60 or over. Now, I'm unusual. I'm a 60-year-old who studied computer science age 15. So I coded in Fortran, Algol 60, COBOL, and other things. And although most of those languages are now um, very rarely used, if at all, some of them are in the big mainframe still, it gave me an understanding of the logic of software and silicon and, and hardware and what was and was not possible and how it happened that enables me to still have conversations with technologists today. I think it's very hard for a company being disrupted 
to face the issues and make decisions, strategic decisions, operational decisions, without having at least some cursory understanding of how the stuff works. Otherwise, their judgment on what is or is not possible when someone presents a proposal to them is poor. Um, now, you, you can do a certain level of training and exposure to people. I know IMD does courses for um, an introduction to IT to senior management. But I think the other thing to do is to start um, hiring people in at not just junior level, but at all levels in the organization who have more technology fluency so that their DNA filters through into the organization as a whole in, in a positive way. And um, as a company, the organization starts to learn at lots of different levels um, how change might happen and then that it is possible and that they could do it. Um, you also have to have some level of understanding to get over the fear. Many companies today are frozen because they're afraid that they aren't going to find a way out because they can see the same statistics that I mentioned earlier, that many companies fail over time. There is a natural life cycle to companies. Um, and that makes it harder to, to face it. So I think mental flexibility, the ability to hire in people who are younger, more understanding about technology, um, an organization that's used to some level of change, all of these things make it easier. But most companies, in fact, all companies after a time will die. And um, obviously, there, I think there's a saying that says... Um, you should be networking today for the um, relationships you want to have in three years, something along those lines. Um, and to put that in that context of new technologies, um, what kind of abilities should you hire today or mindsets should you hire today to be able to ride the next wave? Be it, just to name some buzzwords, the, the blockchain wave or the AI wave or whatever, or a completely different wave. So... Um, so I, get it, I, I guess it depends on who I'm talking to. Uh, if I'm talking to a chief executive and saying, uh, there are a number of people you should try and hire now so that there are uh, that elements of your current business model or value chain can adjust with those people. And then there's the advice I would give students coming out of OPFL or coming out of IMD. Um, um, and, and the advice is, is, is never universal. It depends on the individual depends on the industry they're trying to go into, because it does vary a huge amount these days. Uh, there's, there's a lot of things that are going on. We are at a, a point of change, an inflection point, which is quite extraordinary. And a number of people have called it the, the second or the fourth industrial revolution, depending on which part of history you wish to forget. Um, the, um, uh, and it is, it is therefore that, 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 that sort of time where um, much is going on. I, I think the first thing to say is it's not one thing. I don't think it's, it's just a technology or a science you have to study. I think it's an openness. I think the attitude is an openness. I think the attitude that, that I would encourage everybody to have today is to say, we know what we do now well. We've been doing it for 10 years, 20 years, whatever the company says. I think, I think it's important that senior management and middle management start to say, we really aren't going to be sure about what we're going to do in five years, let alone 10 years. And we therefore need to start talking to people to try and understand. Of course, you want to hire, you want to make sure that almost every graduate that comes in today into your company has had some exposure to technology, either as a user or as a developer or as a coder or just something as someone who's, who's a fan of it and likes them. Because that familiarity with the processes that technology allows will feed into the decisions you make about how to do your product or service. And I think that's important. Um, of course, that's true. And, if, and in certain areas, depending on the industry, um, uh, I, I think block, blockchain is too much of a buzzword. I think um, cryptocurrencies and certain of them are interesting for various reasons, but I think um, People get too fixated on it. Um, machine learning, which is the real word for um, artificial intelligence, because there is not yet any real artificial intelligence, and there may never be. Um, machine learning is is a big, big thing. Uh, the combination of that plus the use of data is going to transform many, many, many industries, and I'm thoroughly enjoying 
um, the time I spend with people in that sector now and the companies that are trying to deal with it. I think that's lots of fun. But it isn't the technology that's important. It's the attitude of the management team to understand they really won't know how they're going to deliver their current service in five years. And that therefore they're going to have to learn as much as they can. They can't rely on the young people coming up. They themselves, who are the decision makers, need to be open enough to learn enough so that they can judge the proposals that are being uh, sent to them, that are being presented before them. I think that openness is what's not needed. I think that um, learning is a very crucial part and to the openness. I also think that it's always very interesting and valuable to, to ask yourself, uh, what is it that you are really producing or delivering? So the, the famous example, obviously, is Kodak um, thinking that they were in the chemistry business for because you need chemistry to produce pictures, but they didn't realize that they were actually in the mem uh, keeping memory business or emotional business or whatever. A absolutely. I think it's, a, it, it's called in, the, in, in business school speak, it's called marketing myopia. Mm -hmm. um, uh, when I was at Pearson, uh, the, the group that owned the Financial Times and The Economist, that one job I had when I left business school, um, they used to tell the story of uh, railroads versus canal builders because early Pearson family members in the 19th century were involved in building canals across the United States. And so they were absolutely convinced they were canal builders. And the railroad came along, they ignored them. And of course, the railroad was transport the same way that canal building was about transport, and it was faster and easier and cheaper. And so the family almost got wiped out. And so 150 years later, 180 years later, when I entered the company, they were still telling this story. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's been relevant for a long, long time. I think, I think um, it's, a very, it's a very good point. I think uh, it's all about trying to understand what, um, what service you're actually providing your customer, whether it's a business customer or a consumer customer, and do they still need it? Do they have other ways of getting it? And there are other alternatives which you're not thinking about, which are very little like what you do and yet provide the same level of satisfaction for the customer. I think that's terribly important. If you have that attitude, this is what I mean by openness, if you have this attitude, then at least you have the capacity to make decisions that might help you go down that path. But as I said earlier, the, the trick is not really knowing what to do. It's changing an existing organization that's been doing a set of processes one way for 20 years. It's very difficult. Uh, I think we could go hours and hours into that topic. Something that I would also like to um, touch on or maybe get back into it a little bit more again is um, um, looking at all the different things that you did, uh, being an athlete for, for some time, co-founder of Wired, um, being an employee, etc. Um, I, I would argue that you are a very curious lifelong learner. And what I would find really interesting is to maybe get a sense of, of you, what you think, what are the right places to learn what. So in a sense, uh, there's, there are traditional business schools that can teach you several things. Uh, you traveled a lot, you were in sports, entrepreneur. And I think all those different things are the right place to learn different things. How would you say, uh, what did you learn from all the different um, categories of activities that you, that you so, did? Again, I think I was quite fortunate. Um, I guess the first thing to say is that one of the reasons that I've done so many different things is because I like trying different things, something I said earlier. Um, and uh, uh, I had a Scottish grandmother who used to say she thought that we as young people, and we're talking about the 1960s and 70s here, um, uh, could do anything we want now. It was much easier than it was when she was a girl but you had to do it well. And so uh, I try things, 
but I tend to go flat out. I tend to go all in. Um, and I think, I think that's not just a, a way to increase your probability of success, but it also increases the learning. If you dabble at things, you never really encounter the brick walls or the problems that, that then actually are learning experiences. So I, I think the, 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 my first lesson from, from, uh, from that and also the first part of the answer to your question is learn by doing. I think learning by doing is really the very best way. Um, I'm currently advising my nephew, um, who is, a, like so many people at 18, a mad keen gamer. And he's desperate to study game design because that's what he wants to do. And he has some coding experience. His father is in the, an IT professional, built an IT company. I remember mentoring him when he was younger. Um, uh, the problem is that the computer game industry is still radically transforming and has been ever since it started. Um, when we were involved in helping Douglas Adams with Starship Titanic, it was the beginning of 3D animation, right at the beginning. Um, so it, it, is, it isn't, that's why they came to me because I understand the sector, but it is ver therefore very hard to find any school where the course isn't out of date. You know, curriculum get developed slowly. You have to agree, you have to get passed through peer development process. It has to be accepted by the institution. It has to be accepted by degree giving bodies. It takes forever to get these things through, at least years, I'm exaggerating. Um, and by the time it takes that time to get through, often 10 years, it's out of date. Um, and yet the father of my nephew, my, my brother-in-law, is worried that if he doesn't go to a proper university, if he changes his mind later or the industry becomes very difficult as it already is, um, he won't have anything else he can do. So he would like him to do some form of course of study. But right now for that sector, and I, I, I sent a mail off to a, some friends and I had lots of responses back and they're all saying really very few schools around. They fortunately give me the names of two that are uh, they consider have kept up to date because they're very connected to industry. Um, but there are very few schools around that will satisfy the needs of industry uh, for this young man to make sure he has a usable career when he comes out, a worthwhile career when he comes out. So in this particular case, if the rate of change is fast, schools are not the right place to go. When the processes are settled, when the processes are understood, then I think a, a university or a school is a good place to go. Uh, when it's something that's rapidly changing, you have to teach yourself and you have to go into industry straight away. Um, the generation of game designers and game builders that I know, so age, ages 35 to 45, there were no schools then. They were all self-taught. They mucked around in their rooms coding and playing with things. There were online groups that, that that shared ideas and games came out of that, companies came out of that. It isn't radically different today. There are schools, there are courses, but most of them are not very useful for anyone trying to enter the industry. So I think, I think the way to learn depends on the rate of change in uh, whatever it is you're trying to learn. It also depends on you a little bit, what you're best suited to. Um, my partner and friend, uh, Louis Rossetto, the editor of Wired, when we founded and the originator of the idea, it was his idea, um, uh, says that he learned more from Saturday morning television than he ever learned from school. And that was his way of learning. And I think, I think it's, you know, it, it, it depends on the individual, right? So uh, my way of learning is to try by doing. I recommend it to many people, but I do know people who need to learn things theoretically first before they can apply them. Um, I'm not that way. I, I try, I fail, I try again, I fail, I try, oh, this time it works, maybe I can do that again. Okay, that's very interesting. I, I very love that um, there's not a distinction, it's a principle to um, when the industry is very fastly evolving, no school can keep up with it. You yeah. need to dive right in yourself. Yeah. Business, business schools find it a little bit easier because they're teaching case by case. 
but it still takes time to write the case studies and it still takes time to get the, the case into a program. So I think if you're in business and doing business, it's easy to get those examples. Also, there's much more interaction in business schools between the professors and companies because the companies are also their clients and advising. Um, and so it is possible uh, for someone um, who is trying to work out how to manage disruption change to learn some of these things and courses. But honestly, it's still learned by doing. Yeah, uh, I am... Um Over a couple of years, I've always been saying that YouTube is the largest university in the world because there, you can learn so much just by watching YouTube videos. I learned um, how to play Congress from YouTube. Uh, voilà, that, that's a very good example. And uh, I just wonder how, um, um, let's say your nephew uh, who's interested in game design, um, he's not going the traditional route of schools. What would you say um, are the places that he can uh, dive right in himself or learn by himself. Um, you're, you're quite right. YouTube is extraordinary. YouTube is just absolutely extraordinary. It's amazing what you can find. Um, but there are other areas on the, on, on the web. In the old days, there used to be Usenet groups and, and chat rooms where you could discuss um, issues with people who are in the same place as you were trying to learn the same sorts of things. There are a range of tools on the internet that make it possible. Um, but in the case of game design, uh, uh, everybody tells me in the end it's the portfolio he has that's going to get him the job. So he has to make it. He has to try. So it's still learning by doing. Um, he can learn. He can learn some basic starts. He can get guidance on which programs to use. He can get guidance on which platforms to use. He still needs to try things out himself and do it. And and when he applies to get his first job, um, which will be badly paid because so many people apply, um, uh, it will be based on what he's been able to create himself. So yes, online, I mean, it, we talked about this at the beginning of Wired. It is one of the most wonderful things about, there's some not so wonderful things about the internet these days, but one of the wonderful things about the internet was going to be access to information, learning, understanding how the people do things, new products, new services, new ideas that the internet absolutely has delivered on. And it makes, it makes it possible for people in small villages in the north of India with one computer and a hole in the wall to understand biochemistry which is a well-known example that, that, that people talk about. Um, and uh, it has, I'm sure, helped my young nephew get to the stage he's already at. Yeah. That's, um, that's a very, very good segue to start uh, talk about the, the Wired story. Um, obviously, one of the, um, if not the leading magazine regarding tech, design, innovation. Um, I'm a big fan of reading Wired. And what, what I... What I'm very interested in is um, uh, it was founded in the early 90s, I think. Is that correct? Yes. The, the, the first time Lewis, Jane, and I sat down and talked about a magazine that was going to become Wired was actually 1988. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, but it didn't launch until January 1993, mm -hmm. uh, five and, years later. And I think it's, it's so um, amazing to realize that at that point in time, There was no internet or it was just right at the beginning? Of There was the internet. Um, you accessed files via file transfer, file transfer protocol, FTP. Mm -hmm. um, the hypertext transfer protocol did not yet exist. And so the World Wide Web, which is defined by HTTP, did not exist. And even when HTTP first came up, it was links within paragraphs. There were no graphics yet. So all of that came about Uh, because of the development of Mark Andreessen and his team at the National Center for Supercomputing of America, NCSA in Chicago, which gave rise to the first graphic browser, which really created the explosion of the internet. There was Netscape, right? It was what became Netscape, exactly. What, what became Netscape. Yeah, and, and we had a, we had a, um, uh, had exposure to this development. Um, but in 88, Lewis and Jane and I were all in Europe. Um, by the time this was happening, 
1992, and we were starting to see the developments, uh, uh, and, and the, the team had, had spent time uh, visiting various people doing cool things with different transfer protocols, which would then eventually lead to what we call the World Wide Web, which we now call the internet now, um, uh, which was, was during the 92 period. Yeah, it was fantastic. And, um, and in fact, they launched their first consumer version of it the same month that we launched the magazine. That's why we launched the magazine that month. We knew it was coming out. Um, and in spite of the fact we didn't have the money, it was it was potentially suicidal. The, mag- the, the company and the magazine could have died that first month because we didn't have enough money to produce month two. Oh, wow. But um, uh, it turned out to be successful to, to, to jump on that wave and ride it? Or um, how did you make it successful even though you took that leap of faith? Um, a bit of luck um, and a huge amount of energy. Um, Lewis um, uh, was absolutely determined that because of the developments we knew about, um, the magazine had to launch January 93. It had to launch. We couldn't not be there helping people understand what was going to become what we call the internet today. The internet has, of course, existed for since the late 50s, but um, what was first called the World Wide Web, in other words, the graphic um, version of the, the internet, Uh, was launched in January 93. And if we didn't have a magazine out talking about it, we thought we'd miss the boat. So he was determined we should do that. It was absolutely Lewis. I, I, I was very worried, but Lewis is, uh, was absolutely right. Um, and I think that, um, uh, uh, that determination that he had, that it was the right thing to do at the right time, whatever the cost, was what helped us get through it. It almost destroyed the company. Um, we didn't have enough money. We'd raised a small amount of money from friends and family to get issue one out. But if I remember correctly, the first month's printer's bill was almost all the money we had in the bank. Um, and we never got out issue two in February. In fact, the first year, I think we produced five issues because every couple of months. Um, what saved us was um, completely unexpected was subscription checks. In the United States, people didn't generally subscribe to magazines because the stores are so big, you can place everything up there and you go and you browse. Not true in Europe. In Europe, people subscribe because the stores where you buy a magazines are much smaller. Real estate is much more expensive. So only a few magazines go up. If there's a specialist magazine that's just out that you want, you subscribe to make sure you can get it in case the shop owner doesn't put enough on the shelf. Opposite problem in the US. Floor, uh, shelves full of magazines, lots of choice. You browse, you pick what you want, you may get a different one next month. Because there was so pent up demand for this magazine, because we'd been talking about it for a couple of years before we actually launched, and because um, we'd been successful with our various clever, um, cheap, low-cost campaigns to promote it, um, uh, people got very excited about it. When the first magazine came out, the content um, fit very well what people wanted. And so people used to send us subscription checks, which again, people don't normally do in the US, by cutting out the card at the back of the magazine and mailing it to us with a $50 check or $49.95, I forget what it was. Those checks would come in by the thousands. That funded us until we got our next round of funding done uh, in March, and then we yes. could get the next magazine out. So energy, Determination on Lewis's part, a bit of luck. Um, although I guess we produced a good product, which is why we got the subscription checks. But but you know we we ripped open those envelopes and ran down to the bank and deposited those checks as fast as we could to cash flow the business until we could get proper funding in. We got a, a, another round done in March so that we could produce issue two, so we could keep going. I think it's always so inspiring to hear how something that big and uh, globe spanning starts with those kinds of. Of, um, of issues and realities you have to tackle. And that's always very, very inspiring. Uh, when you talked about some um, low cost uh, um, marketing uh, tricks or campaigns, there was a 
smile on your face. Uh, could you maybe tell one or two stories of, um, of those campaigns? I, I, I won't say too much other than that um, we had very little money. So it wasn't a question of saying, what's the best way to make the impact? Right? What's the cleverest, funniest way to make the impact? How are we going to make sure we get the number of people? We didn't have the money. What we did was we looked at what's the cheapest way to do any promotion whatsoever. Right? And you know, it, it, we couldn't afford radio or television. We, a little bit of radio. We couldn't afford television. We couldn't afford um, magazine ads or newspaper ads or things. The cheapest thing out there was bus poster campaigns. So the sides of buses and, and at bus stops. Um, and so then the challenge was, okay, that's the cheapest way. How do we make it effective? So it's not the business school theoretically about how's the best way to do this. It's what money do we have? What can we afford? And then you do the best you can with what you have. I, I think that's the best thing to say. And I smile just because it reminds me that in every company I've ever done, it wasn't always advertising, but there was always a point like that. Um, I think we are currently in Europe, actually globally at the moment, but certainly in Europe and certainly in Switzerland, we're in an overfunded environment. Money's too easy to come by. And it means the kids don't have to solve the problems that we had to solve at the time by doing the best you can with no money. It makes you creative. It makes you clever with your money. It makes you spend it more carefully. You waste less. Um, I think bootstrapping, doing it with very little money. Now, there's always a point where you absolutely need some, but doing it as much as you can with very little money is a great discipline and also tremendous fun because you have to make an impact with less money. And I think that's a good thing to learn. Another one of those things you don't learn at school, you have to learn by doing. Absolutely. Um, obviously, we talked about the World Wide Web as one of the hot topics of of the founding days of Wired. Um, could you maybe give uh, some more context of what were, um, what was the, the zeitgeist of, of those era? What were maybe the hot topics in tech or society or were there uh, specific um, tech utopias or dystopias? Because I can imagine that there are, there are similarities and differences when you compare it to today. I, you're right. Um, let me start by saying that um, we didn't start with the World Wide Web. Uh, in 1988, when we were talking about a magazine, Lewis and Jane were in Amsterdam publishing a magazine called Language Technology. Language Technology was about machine translation. It was about um, uh, speech to text and text back to speech again. And I think the, the strongest company at the time was Siemens, who of course are nowhere now, but uh, they had a strong group uh, that, did, that, that did work in this area. Um, And then, um, and Lewis was very excited about the potential for, for, for that at the time. Uh, and then it was the next uh, technology which, which became very interesting to us was um, desktop publishing, um, which led to the change of the magazine. Also, we had a change of uh, owner and sponsor in Holland, uh, and it became Electric Word. So language technology became a magazine called Electric Word, and it was talking about how the fact that publishing became cheaper meant that many more people could publish books and magazines, and it would lead to the democratization of access to information. If you think about it, those are the same words we then use for the internet almost two years later. Um, so that was 88, 89, 90, uh, 90 to 91, Electric Word. Electric Word now, by the way, still exists. It's a section in Wired. If you look for it, most Wired magazines, I think they still have it as a section in Wired. And then uh, that led us on to the broader development of information technology um, uh, solutions for a whole bunch of things. And that's when we realized it was going to be very, very big. Um, and then the decision was made to um, uh, move to a, a base where we had a single language which allowed us to publish to more people. It was very hard to publish in English in Holland. Um, and uh, um, uh, the team moved to San Francisco and, and, and uh, in the valley, near the valley where everything was going on. And it meant that we were in exactly the right environment to be able to judge and see what was going on, report on it. 
So it, there was a series of technologies which got it, got us interested. And then, uh, then the realization that the interconnectedness of all things to combine with the ability to, for anybody to publish at no cost, with no marginal cost at least, um, meant that um, our understanding of how the world um, worked was going to change for everybody. Everybody would have access to information. Also, everybody could publish, which might lead to other problems. Um, that's, that's how it all started. I will say that the biggest difference between then and now, um, and Lewis remarked on it at the 20th, 25th anniversary party that we had uh, three weeks ago in San Francisco, kindly hosted by Condé Nast, who bought the magazine from us in, uh, in 98, 99, um, was that Lewis was always very positive about the impact of technology. We all were. We all could see that this was going to be fantastically positive for the world in all sorts of different ways. Um, maybe we didn't see some of the negative aspects that, that people talk about now, but in general, um, uh, it, it wasn't quite utopian as a view. Uh, it certainly wasn't dystopian. It was, it was very much a sense that this was going to be good, that, it was, that, that change in general was good, and that there were cool things that we could be able to do, and things that enabled people to get more learning, um, to create new businesses, to create new opportunities, to do more traveling, to do gain, for people to gain more understanding of the world around them, which would help um, the whole world work better. I think there's a lot, some of that is lost today. There's so much negativity. Maybe maybe it's a backlash I, uh, against certain powerful companies. Um, certainly the um, the fall in the Facebook stock price lately, and the um, criticism of Facebook founders um, and um, um, executives uh, to do with political issues in the U.S., but also to do with privacy issues around the world. A lot of this is feeding into a a story that is developing about how information technology has risks. All technology has risks. I think we're a little bit too focused on the negative at the moment, and I think um, not enough is being said about the positive. And I think uh, uh, Lewis's view, our view, was always that Wired was about the wonderful things we could do, because there are wonderful things you could do. Uh, yes, with every tool, um, people will do less wonderful things. Um, that doesn't mean the wonderful things don't exist. And I think in general, if we go forward with change, rather than stay in one place and try to stay uh, do the same thing we've always done, the world is better off. So you know, Lewis also introduced recently, uh, he wrote his first fiction book based on the period that, that, that we uh, launched Wired. And the title of the book is called Change is Good. Uh, so he still believes that. And I think it's, a, it's an attitude we all still hold. It's very good. Is, um, uh, obviously, everybody says or knows that in hindsight, you're always uh, cleverer or you yep. know more. Um, when you look back uh, um, in that era and you say... Um, Maybe in general, one could say people were more optimistic or more positive or just the zeitgeist that you described. In hindsight, would you say, is there something that you uh, apply to today's uh, state of the, of the union, so to speak, that uh, maybe we could benefit from? Just uh, learnings from the past to how to... So I think that speaks to a, um, a broader question about... Um, what information we absorb today and, and how it gets to us and how we react to it. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that clearly has happened as a result of our ability to choose what we read. Uh, in the old days, um, the news we read was provided to us by an editorial team and ultimately an editor. Whether it was TV news or a newspaper or a magazine, someone else gathered the information because gathering that information was complicated and then published it because publishing was expensive and decided what it was we would read. So the information we received was editorially guided. Today exists the search engine. We no longer have to listen to one editor's voice. 
or even 10. We can choose the editorial voice we wish to listen to. We can search for the story we want, the information we want. And unfortunately, we can also search the angle we want. So increasingly, people are reading what they want to read. They're reading from people that um, they like to read. Often those people um, agree with them. So uh, we end up with a polarization of readership, which in turn leads to a polarization of news organizations because they feel that um, if they write anything, uh, the audiences are so polarized now, if they write anything over on the right, nobody on the left will read it. If they write anything on the left, no one on the right will read it. So they might as well just accept they're one way or the other. Um, some organizations still pretend to be closer to the middle, but their bias is very clear because that's what they feel current market um, parameters drive them to do. Um, I think that um, this changes what we see and what we don't see. When we, I, I had a company in the UK for a while called Aztec, which, among other things, built the BBC News Online operation for the BBC. That wasn't just the website. We actually hired the people, built the processes, agreed with the BBC News organization um, how it would work, and actually um, created the operating systems and the business processes that eventually was BBC News Online. And in that, uh, we had, in those very early days, 96, 97, I went to the um, 21st anniversary party in London recently. Um, yes, we asked for people's preferences about what they wanted to read, but we always retained 25 to 30%, which was going to be what we thought they should read. That element of what we thought they should read is missing in much of today's media. People are getting to see only what they want. So back to your core question about positive versus negative. Um, I think it's healthy to be exposed to more than one viewpoint. I think it's healthy to be exposed to viewpoints that disagree with you if they're reasonable. I think it, you know, if it's just bombastic and loud from whichever side it comes on, it's not helpful to anybody. But um, I think... Uh, um, if I'm being positive, all the information's out there. And I have seen, and Lewis and I talked about it while we were in San Francisco recently. We, we talked about whether there was a, it was time to launch a new um, news organization in the center or new organi uh, news organizations in the center. But people are starting to do it. I've seen uh, discussion groups turning up on YouTube of all places mm -hmm. and other places. So I, 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 think, I think there is this um, pushback from people who don't just want to be on the far right or the far left. Also, the political spectrum aren't what they used to be. Um, people are more issues-based than they are traditional political lines. Um, and, I, and so I'm still positive. I'm not negative about this. I think people see this as a big negative and it's a problem, but I already see it starting to wave back again. I think in general, uh, I totally agree with Lewis's premise that change is good. I think that it provides opportunities and I think it provides tools. If anything stays static for too long, it's one group of people that get good at it and control it. Change allows new people to come in and have new influences. And the fact that we constantly have new voices in any sector of industry is a good thing. So change allows, it makes it hard for anybody to have too much power for too long. Uh, the shortening, someone talked about the shortening life cycles of companies recently. That's probably a good thing for us. It means that no one has too much power for too long. Um, I think also it's so short that I think uh, um, some commentator recently talked about how everybody assumes that Facebook is brand new and is the new power in the street and therefore that it needs to be controlled. You know, you hear voices in Europe especially who are, concerned about this, but even also a little bit on the, in parts of the political spectrum in the US, they forget that Facebook can disappear just as quickly as it came up. Uh, it's, it, companies fall, fall all the time and for all sorts of different reasons. So I think, I think um, change in general is good and we shouldn't be too harsh on, on the newcomers because sometimes they have to learn their way. Oh, um, 
would like to um, uh, go back one step and maybe uh, dig a little bit deeper on the um, uh, the editorial skills that are are somewhat um, more required in each individual more than ever because there are less editorial um, people uh, deciding at the first place what goes out. Um, when you, what would you tell your um, kids or, or grandkids uh, how, how to assess um, the world, how to um, assess if an information is trustworthy or not? Uh, in short, um, how can one learn those kind of editorial skills to, to view the world uh, from many different angles, etc.? I think it's a I think it's a really good question. Um, I think it's a good question because it points to <clears throat> a change in our relationship to information and media, which um, many people are not necessarily aware of. They're sort of uh, tangentially aware of, but they haven't consciously taken it on board and thought that they have to change the way they do things or change the way they teach their children. Uh, I'll, I'll first um, start with a corollary, which is that um, it isn't that the editorial um, voices aren't there anymore. It's that there are too many, and we don't know which one to listen to. Um, um, also because there are so many more news sources than there were, um, I would suggest that the high quality journalism, the high quality editorial voices that are there are now spread across more, um, outputs, more platforms, newspaper, television, but also the variety of online places. So whereas it used to be that <clears throat> in any one country, you'd have one or two newspapers that would have all the strongest writers in the world because it was the only place to work. Now they're spread thin, which I think in general means that the quality of what we're seeing in traditional media is actually falling. I think that's a statement which will get me into trouble with many of my old journalist friends, but I think it's true because I think the really great voices are spread spread more thinly. So the, the editorial voices are there, but they're kind of spread all over the place, and so it's harder to know um, which one to listen to. Um, and you use the right word. It is trust. Um, in the past, uh, the brand name associated with the magazine or the TV station was something you trusted. And so whoever was on that, you figured had to be good. We listened to that. We trusted that. How do you build trust in an environment where there are not 10 editorial voices in any country, but 10 million? It's hard to do. Um, uh, so what I tell my girls is, uh, my daughters, it's, it's not what I tell them. It's, it's what I encourage my girls to do is to try and listen to as many different types of voices as possible, discuss it, um, and make up their own minds. Um, I don't think it's a bad thing that people are tested within their own prejudices or assumptions um, to try out different ideas that might be opposed and work out which one they're most comfortable with. Um, I think some people would have preferred my answer to that question to be, oh, well, we should, we should find people who are really good at being clear and in the center, and we should set up a media organization around those people, and, and we should help everybody listen to these people. I, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's maybe the right sort of thing to do for some people. It may be necessary, and, and, and I do talk about it every now and then with people, about starting one of these new um, uh, centrist, practical, issues-focused media sources rather than a right-wing newspaper or left-wing newspaper, uh, but try to come up with a, uh, an issues-focused, um, um, clear um, media organization. I do talk about that. But I think the more helpful suggestion is that everybody helps their children understand that there are different points of view, and they need to try and work them through themselves and discuss 
and think about them and see how they feel about them. And I think people would come to sensible conclusions a lot of the time. I have great faith in, in the ability of people to, to work things through if they get clarity. Now, I did mention prejudices and assumptions. Um, if you're brought up in a, an environment where your viewpoints end up being biased by either parents or um, the environment you live in or the um, ethnic group you live in or any other reason, um, then uh, your initial perceptions and assumptions will be biased because you're in that environment. I'm still of the view that if you're exposed to enough different views, you can overcome those biases. I think all children today should be taught to um, listen to differing points of view and, and see what it feels like to them and discussing it. And I think they'll work it out. I hope you are enjoying this episode so far. If you like what you hear, why not collaborate with Sparker on your next business event? Sparker drives strategy and innovation workshops forward as a goal-oriented facilitator. And Sparker can also contribute to your next high-caliber conference as moderator or speaker. If you want to learn more, visit www.sparker.ch moderation. You find the link in the description of this episode. And now back to the rich conversation of this Sparker podcast. Uh, I think um, coming back to our questions of uh, what can one learn how and where, I would say um, getting used to the existence of different viewpoints, um, traveling is a good way to, to get exposed to seeing the world very differently. And that is a, um, a segue I tried to create to go to uh, the next um, topic I would like to uh, benefit of your experience, and that is uh, China. Uh, you've been living in China, you've been traveling all over the world, but you've been living in China uh, for, I would say, maybe, what, 10 years, roughly? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And um, obviously, it's not only the digital transformation that is changing the world and also changing business, but also the rise of China. And I thought it would be very interesting to um, hear some of your thoughts of, um, since you lived in China, um, how, how can one better understand uh, the, this rising power of China. Is it, um, are there some obvious basics and maybe less obvious fundamentals that everybody should, should know? Just, I'm very curious to, to hear your perspective on uh, how to deal and think of China. And that's a big question, but I'm very happy to, uh, to go wherever you want to take it. It's a very big topic. It's a very big topic. Um, first of all, let me agree with your initial premise, which is that travel is just in, indispensable for uh, broadening minds, as they used to say, but also to help everyone understand that three very smart people from three very different cultural contexts can look at the same problem and have three very different opinions. Three good people, three good, understanding, intelligent people looking at exactly the same issue can come up with three very different viewpoints. And I think learning that early, learning that young is, is of tremendous value for um, a person's ability to survive and thrive in life today, especially with the world that we live in. Um, 
It's why I'm a big fan of international schools where you have children from multiple nationalities in the one classroom. It helps, and obviously it's difficult for everybody to go to an international school, but, but if you're able to send your children to international schools or take them to places where they have international schools and they experience different viewpoints in the classroom, they will be um, broader human beings, more informed human beings for it. Uh, and I think it's, uh, I think it's uh, um, absolutely the greatest benefit of travel. If you travel and you actually meet people and you actually listen and you just don't do the trips that everybody does in group and eat the foreign food and laugh amongst yourselves and never actually talk to anybody wherever you travel. It has to be real travel, not tour groups. Um, so uh, China. Um, so China is complicated and complex. Um, it's going through a series of transitions at the moment, which are, uh, are particularly complex. Um, um, the current leadership have a very different view from the previous leadership, and you can see some of the impact in um, how much harder it is to gain work visas for senior employees of foreign companies, uh, in the way that um, NGOs are run by foreigners in China, even if they're registered locally, now report to the police bureau rather than, in our case, for example, one of the charities I set up, we reported to the China Disabilities Association, now we report to the police. Many things about China lately have, uh, have been impacted by this new viewpoint about China's role in the world. So it's a complex place. It's a complex place. And it changes with leadership um, over time. Um, I'm not sure where I want to start. And I'm not sure what I want to say in, 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 in such a, a relatively short podcast. I, I will say that um, uh, this notion that it's all led by the center, by a single party and a single man, uh, is is misleading. Um, China is a very big country with lots of regions. Um, it's very difficult for someone in the center to say to someone out in the southwest, you will do this tomorrow and have that person do it. Um, they can lose the instruction. They can forget. They can um, find excuses that things get delayed. Um, there are various um, changes in rules that have taken place over the last 15, 16 years, 18 years now since I've been traveling to China. Um, that I've noticed take a long while to filter down to some regions because there's resistance for whatever reason. So it's not it's not the big monolith necessarily that people think about. On the other hand, it very much is one party, one leader, and there is a huge amount of power concentrated there. It's just, it isn't quite as straightforward as that. Um, so let me say a couple of small things. Rather than try and, um, uh, I, I, um, I'm a photographer, as you mentioned, and I started as a photographer, um, even when I was at university studying particle physics. Um, and one of the lessons I give to, to people um, who are trying to photograph something, especially in architecture, which I did for a while, the, the, the first thing that most people do when they see a big building in front of them and they're supposed to take a photo of it is they step back because they want to include the whole building. And yes, you get the whole shape of the building and when you do that, but you start losing the detail. And sometimes the detail is more informative about what something's like. And so I encourage people to go forward when they're taking a photo and, and find details to take a picture of. And that's sometimes more interesting as a way to understand things. And I'm going to use that same analogy here. So I'll say a couple of things about China rather than try and describe the whole thing. Um, the first thing is the, um, the, the term guanxi. Uh, guanxi is uh, a, a well-known phrase. It's, you often hear it talked about in the West. It, it means relationships. And so uh, most Westerners, when they go to China, especially if they're doing business, they assume that what they need to do is develop guanxi develop relationships with people. And they think, oh, we understand that. In any industry in the West, whether it's the United States or in Europe, no one will trust you until they've done a few deals with you. And once they trust you, you have relationships and that creates the basis for long-term profitable, mutually profitable businesses. That's not how it works in China. 
in China, Guanxi describes relationships that exist. You can't build them. You can't make them. You can't create them. They either are there or they're not. Um, when people, when my Chinese friends talk about Guanxi, they're talking about someone who they went to Chinese Middle Fourth School, which is a school of all the national leaders in the center of Beijing at some stage. And the fact that they have friends at that school means that they have Guanxi. And those are, that's a school where they were eight years old, nine years old, 10 years old together. When the Chinese talk about relationships, they mean embedded relationships, historical relationships, um, relationships that can't be broken, which mean that you have no, you have almost no choice but to respect them because there are too many interlinkages through family and relationships and company and government and party alignments to go across it without, without penalties. It's almost an anti-negative rather than a positive, the Guanxi. Um, and I think understanding that it's not something that a Westerner can walk into China and create is terribly important. Um, uh, one of the other things I think that, that's important about China today and trying to understand how it reacts to um, things like uh, Trump's decision to impose tariffs on um, uh, the Chinese um, to use as a lever to gain more unfettered access to Chinese markets and, as they keep saying, to um, um, dampen down the, um, quote, theft, unquote, of intellectual property from American companies and the various other things they talk about. Um, it's a big stick approach to um, negotiation. Uh, and I know that um, uh, the idea is to have big stick and carrot at the same time. Um, as with all learning, um, and you asked the question earlier about what's the best way to learn about things. It not only depends about the sector in, but it depends on the individual. Some people learn some ways, some people learn another way. China, in spite of its um, place in the, in the international sphere today as a strong, powerful, um, hugely powerful, highly populated, extraordinarily broad and deep country, is still deeply insecure. The leadership is still insecure about how it's treated and, and looked upon abroad. The country itself is insecure about how it um, is perceived. And so um, uh, understanding, understanding the sensitivities in China are important. Um, if you go to the Summer Palace in um, uh, northwestern Beijing, uh, inner northwestern Beijing, uh, there are um, plaques telling you about the history of various places there. What's said in the English version is not the same as what's said in the Chinese version. The English version talks about the environment and the history and the fact that the um, emperor of the time would go up with his entourage and spend weeks and days there. The Chinese version talks much more angrily about the sacking of the Summer Palace by the British in the 1800s and um, what an awful event it was. And, um, and it shows in the fact that this is written and the way it's written and the language is written how angry they still are about it 150 years later. Um, so there are many sensitivities about history. Chinese have, are very, very, very um, conscious of history. Um, they talk about their own 5,000-year history. Uh, Western historians argue that actually there was a period in that where it was not really um, governed as one country. But either way, Chinese talk about a 5,000-year history, and they're conscious of the things that happen. Uh, and so slights that we think of as in the past are still conscious in the memories of um, all Chinese taught Chinese history today. Um, so China is a complicated place. And I think, I think um, assuming that they react the same way that we will to things, assuming that you can use one approach 
the same approach for three or four different types of countries is 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 risky. Um, uh, and so there is a at the moment there is very clearly an anti foreigner push. Um, they would rather have um, more of the um, um, economy being controlled by Chinese than foreigners, but it's also an anti-independence push. They would like more of the economy to be controlled by Communist Party members and not just people who are outside. Communist Party is still very important to the leadership. It's one of the reasons that Jack Ma um, was recently made a member of the Communist Party or came out as a member of the Communist Party. Um, um, Jack, I think, is, is one of the most apolitical business people you'll ever meet, but it's important today to be a Communist Party member again, as it was 35, 40 years ago, and hasn't been for the last 20 years. So there are things about China that that, that are, are complicated. And what would you say, um, obviously we can also move on, but what, what are the things that we should learn um, that would enrich our uh, way of life or our way of doing business? And if you wish to move to another topic, we can also do that. Um, I... I guess I want to say a couple of things. One is um, we as a family lived there, in fact, for eight years as a family. I've been going there since 2001, so that makes 17 years now. But uh, we as a family lived there for eight years, uh, and we loved it. We had a wonderful time. Um, we, uh, as a cultural experience, uh, traveling in China and, and making sure I chose a school for my kids, which was an international school, but well embedded within the Chinese environment with lots of good relationships within China for historical reasons, um, made it a very rich experience for the whole family. And I think we all learned a great deal. Um, uh, and having the freedom to, to do the things we wanted to do was, was, was great. I, I made sure that everybody learned Chinese and understood some uh, uh, of Chinese culture and history, both traditional and contemporary. Um, and so um, there are many things about how things are done in very complex, very busy, very competitive societies, which are useful for, for, um, for us to understand. Because it is a, a, um, a, a um, competitive environment on a Darwinian scale. It's quite extraordinary how, how, how aggressively competitive it is just because there are so many people in such concentrated spaces. Um, uh, I think there are assumptions people make about uh, the silly things that people still say about the lack of creativity because there's a lot of learning by rote. Yes, there is a lot of learning by rote in the schools, uh, but it's 1.5 billion, almost 1.4 billion people. Um, so there are a lot of very smart people in amongst the 1.4 billion people and a lot of very creative people. Um, and they have, they have uh, in, in pure business terms, in, in, in my space, sort of in, in technology and media, I was amazed from, from the very first um, years I arrived there in, in 2001, 2003 to see the innovation that was taking place in mobile telephony. Why? Because the population couldn't afford expensive phones. So they were very cheap, basic, simple phones. It's a bit like my story about the bus poster campaign. You have no money, so you get more creative about what you do with it. So they had a lot of innovation going on in, ter in, in terms of what was capable in a small, inexpensive electronic device because there was no money, because they had to do as much as they could with much more limited means. I think that's super impressive about China, and you see this everywhere. Um, people often wonder um, why it is that the, um, the Chinese eat some strange things. It's because there's no waste. It's because they use every single part of the animal if they can find a way to, uh, to make it, because when they're in the, in the outlying regions, if you're in the poorer regions, you don't waste anything. So some of the attitudes towards um, um, not wasting uh, food produce and innovation based on need because there simply aren't the resources. Maybe the company has it, but the audience doesn't have it, the customers don't have it, uh, is, is, is just fascinating. And I, I learned tons while I was there because of that. I could imagine that might be um, a good link to also start to talk a little bit about um, the social entrepreneurs and nonprofit that you are working with. Because I could imagine that they also have this challenge of uh, being 
innovative um, with very little resources or working with and for people with very little resources. Is that correct? That, um, and you are active in nonprofits uh, in Asia and all over the world, right? Yes, it, it, um, I think it works both ways. The, um, let me start by saying that um, uh, uh, the reason this became a, a big part of our lives in China is that I was exposed to something called the Global Social Venture Capital Competition. Uh, it was uh, started by a, a small number of American schools. I think Wharton's involved, I think also Northwestern, I forget. Um, and um, uh, because I was helping at London Business School, it wasn't my business school, but I had friends there and they asked me to come in and help on the entrepreneurship and the venture capital programs. I ended up being asked to judge the GSVC, the Global Social Venture Capital Competition in London. Um, in the United States, there are, I think, five or six schools, maybe there are more now, where MBA teams would compete to um, come up with business-based solutions to social problems. The idea was to develop essentially self-funding charities. You would do good with the organization you were doing, but instead of having to have the founder rely on donations from third parties, you tried to create a business model inside the charity so it paid for itself. I love that idea. It, I think not only is it um, a waste of um, good people to spend all their time begging for money from third parties, but by helping local communities make their own money, it's more noble. It's much more noble to teach someone how to make their own money than to have to give them money for whatever reason. And this is true whether they're... Um, suffering from certain disabilities, as it is from people who are in poor regions with no access to education. So the idea of it, I, I fell in love with in, in, in the late 90s in, in London. Um, so uh, when I went out to China, one of the things I said I would try and do is to look for issues that I could help with and, and, and try and find ways to build business models around it. I, I, I won't go into the detail. It's, it's, again, one of those topic areas which, which can be broad, but um, uh, a couple of snippets to indicate some of the things we did. Um, uh, there was no shortage of people willing to work hard in China. Um, part of the um, having a, a country with so many people and such dense populations is the competition for school places, for education, for work, for jobs, for anything, for plots of land to, to grow produce on is high. The competition is fierce, so everybody works. Uh, it's a natural thing because of competition. Um, and so um, it... Uh, it, it leads to all sorts of things, some good, some bad. Um, um, we started Wheels Plus Wings as a, an organization to help change the way the Chinese population thought about children with disabilities um, because of some of the issues that arise from the competition for space. Um, uh, there was concern that um, since it was so difficult if you were poor uh, and lived in a regional area to survive, that having a child with a physical disability made it made the child stop two steps back. It was already hard enough. Um, uh, we wanted to help people understand that just because a child had a physical disability, it didn't mean they couldn't go to school, have friends, play. Um, and so um, uh, we provided wheelchairs and scholarship for local schools. But actually the key thing was having telling stories uh, in video, which we then got played on CCTV, the Chinese national television station, which helped people realize that children could... Um, could have fulfilling lives, even if they needed a wheelchair and even if they had other disabilities. And I think that was some, something we did, which I think was um, very satisfying. The government was, has thanked us in various ways and a number of articles and TV programs were done about what, the work that we did, which was, was nice. This has changed slightly because, well, this has changed quite a, a, a big deal at the moment. Um, 
The Chinese are sensitive to the notion that there are social problems in their country that requires a foreign-run NGO to solve it or help it. Uh, I understand that sensitivity. Um, it makes sense. Um, it's, after all, a, a state that um, uh, claims still to be socialist. Um, it's a socialist capitalist state in many ways. Um, and therefore, um, uh, that's um, why there's been pressure on NGOs uh, since the arrival of the current management, current government, uh, and why we all report to the police rather than our respective non-profit organization. So um, I, I totally understand the, the, um, the, the reasons behind it, but it's made, it's made um, working in non-profit more complicated in China lately. Um, I hope it will return at some stage, but um, that makes it difficult. I think um, more broadly, um, uh, the idea of helping people help themselves is what I like doing. It's, it's uh, what I think is behind um, what I call social entrepreneurship. It's a term used by many people in many different ways. There's a spectrum, of course, from pure charity at one end. In the middle, there's charity and business mixed. And at the far end, there's business using charity as PR, which with almost no help at all. So that area in the middle where you mix business models with doing good, and I call it doing good rather than charity, I think is, 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 is what I enjoy. And we were involved in a number of different projects in different ways. Uh, two worked, two didn't uh, over the period we were there. Um, and uh, I think the most important thing is not so much the success or otherwise of what we did, but an awful lot of local people we work with are now doing their own projects because of the philosophy and attitude of trying to find um, business models to solve social issues. It's a natural thing anyway. I mean, the Chinese love business and love trying to um, find ways to make money and, and, and solve problems. So it's a, I think it's a, an attitude that's, that's um, uh, broadly popular. I, I helped... Um, a number of friends who are um, influential venture capitalists, Chinese nationals, uh, when I was in China, uh, think about their own forays into social venture. They, um, and they, they very much liked the idea of um, marrying the two uh, because they were natural investors. So they understood how to judge management teams and understood how to um, uh, work out business models and make sure that um, processes could grow. So that same process is applied to venture capital, specifically VC, not private equity, which is growth when you've already got something started, but building something from nothing, creating working processes, making sure that money comes in, making sure that you have a process that's manageable. It's absolutely applicable to developing self-funding charities, um, social ventures, as I call them. And so it's, uh, I, I know a number of friends who are uh, investors in China who are now doing this themselves. And um, I'm also very, very fascinated or a big fan of this idea that charities or social ventures can uh, fund themselves. Um, is there uh, something that traditional, let's call them traditional businesses, can learn from, from the models vivendi, the way of um, tackling a problem that uh, social ventures? So um, it's not so much, I think, a, a set of processes, but um, a little bit like the answer to the question you asked earlier about how do companies facing disruption um, prepare themselves to improve their chances of survival. It's not so much certain tools or skills you need to learn, it's an attitude. Um, uh, I think that, um, and this is something, I'm, I'm, this is not rocket science and many people have spoken about this, but I'm a believer in this. Um, I think understanding that everything we do has impact and that if there is a way to, and both positive and negative, um, and both directly involved in the business model and um, externalized impact. I think if we're conscious as business leaders to think about the impact of everything we do in the company, 
in a way that um, uh, thinks about the externalities, thinks about uh, potential uh, consequences of what we're doing that may not negatively affect our business model, but might affect other things. I think we can change the way we run businesses. And no, I don't think it means we um, spend more money and I don't think it means we're less profitable. I think it's just an attitude. Um, some things you can do, some things you can't do. Um, um, if, you're looking at, if you're looking at every chunk of your value chain and you can see one or two areas where you might be able to do, uh, make a change in the way you do things and improve the lot of either the employees or people in the environment around the company, if it doesn't cost you money, I think you'd be a fool not to do it. Some areas, if it costs you too much, it's too hard to do it, fine. Um, uh, maybe it's just not possible. But I think the attitude that you review everything you do, every component, not just the final product, not just the service, not just your sourcing, and not just the way you manage your employees, but if you, as a manager, and I mean not just the founder, but everybody at every level, if, if you're encouraged to think about all the consequences of the way you do things, I think we'll run better companies. I also think they'll be more sustainable over time because people will believe in them more. I also think if, the, um, if there's no negative impact of the company you're um, running in a particular geographic or cultural context, um, you're less likely to encounter resistance at some point, and you're more likely to encounter support if you get into trouble. So um, I, think, I think it's an attitude. I think, I think all companies, large and small, and I, people give lip service to this. It's just not happening as much as I would like, but I'm sure it will happen more over time. If all companies at all times thought about um, all the consequences of every component of their value chain as they build a business, they would be better sustainable businesses. Uh, very good point. And um, I think as a, maybe as a last short chapter, because I'm uh, very much aware of your valuable time, I'm so much enjoying this conversation, but to kind of go maybe full circle or um, I, uh, we've been touching on several things you did and experienced in your life. And it has been very various and, and exciting. And, um, what I wonder is if you, from the different, um, stages in your life or the different, yeah, let's call them stages where you maybe had different focus areas or paid attention to different things. Um, because you did so many different things, I wonder, did your priorities change over time that you, um, that guided you somewhere to different places? Um, or is there a common threat through all these different activities? Um, certainly things changed uh, and priorities did change. Uh, I consider that the single most important thing I've done in my life is be a father. Uh, the single most satisfying thing um, I've done in my life is to be a father. Um, and I'm, that doesn't mean I necessarily think I've done a great job, but um, nothing has given me more pleasure and occasionally more pain uh, when I feel I've done something wrong. Um, you do the best you can in all things. Um, and so the period whilst my children were growing changed my priorities. It wasn't just, oh, I want to spend more time with the kids and make sure I try and get home for poetry recitals or whatever, which I did do. Um, it was also that it made me conscious of things that I didn't think about before. Um, our decision to support um, social ventures around children in uh China was probably not a decision I could have made if I didn't have children of my own. You're more sensitive to things. Um, uh, the fact that it was um, uh, children with disabilities was not um, an accident either. It was because I met a friend of mine. Uh, um, you said earlier that I was a coach of the America's Cup team. I was actually um, 
team principal, which meant that I was on more on the business side. But the manager of the team was a friend of mine, um, uh, Stuart James, who was born with um, osteogenesis imperfecta, which is the Americans call brittle bone disease. He bumps against the wall. He breaks bones. He's very, very sensitive. It's, 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 a, it's a really a, a difficult condition. Um, and yet he built a sports management company, made money, uh, has a wife and children, has had a successful career, has traveled around the world. He's an extraordinary man. Um, so uh, Stuart and I became great friends, um, uh, partly because he was uh, the manager of the Chinese America's Cup team at the time for a um, for the Chinese owner, and um, there was a need for um, more capital, more investment, more supporters, more sponsors, and, and I came in to help. Um, uh, why did I mention this? Uh, oh, and it was because I met Stuart that um, uh, that charity that we developed, originally a social venture, became a charity because the business side became complicated for different reasons in China. It was because Stuart had this disability and it was a way for the two of us to work on together on trying to help other children with his disability and disabilities like it. So uh, I'm affected by all the people I meet. Uh, I don't make decisions because it's a career plan. I've never made a career plan. Um, when I was younger, I, I could be selfish. So I took photos because there were no girls in the maths department at Auckland University. And it was the only way to be pretty girls when I was 15 and they were 18. Um, I became a photographer because I wanted to travel and I'd grown up with National Geographic and my father was a journalist and, and it seemed to me a wonderful way to visit a country and learn about the country and learn a language and contribute at the same time. So um, the various decisions I've made in my life have all been a function of the people I met. I don't think, I, if I'd had a plan, I never would have planned it this way. Um, I met Lewis and Jane, thoroughly enjoyed um, being with them and working with them and talking with them. So that led to Wired. Um, and I, I still make my decisions, as I said, very early on based on the people and whether it's something I think I want to do. It's never based on whether I think the project will make money, as I keep saying. It's more, this might be fun. This might be interesting. I might learn things. I might be able to try things I've never done before. Um, if there's a thread, uh, I guess it's things I know how to do. In the end, it's, there are some things that are easier than, and harder for different people. Uh, I'm lucky. I've, I've been good at a whole bunch of stuff. Um, if you're born reasonably bright and, and you're born reasonably healthy and, 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 um, and uh, I was able to do sports at a high level, it makes it easier, right? I'm, I've been fortunate. I can do things, a lot of things, and so I'm able to choose things that I like to do. But there are still things that, are, are, that seem to be a thread in my life. I've done a lot of things related to media and um, communication. Um, and even now I'm on boards of media organizations and if I'm thinking about new projects to launch, I'm, I'm also thinking about media. Now, I'm also looking at medtech. I will tell you that as you get older and parts of your body stop functioning the way you would like, you become naturally interested in what's going on in medicine and um, health generally. So I'm, I'm, I've become an investor in a medtech company and I'm looking at other things. So um, I'm influenced by the things that happen in me, the things that happen around me, and the people I meet. That's how I decide. I, I, you know, I think life's too short. It's, if you're going to have to spend every night for three weeks in a row until four o'clock in the morning trying to solve a problem, it better be with people you like working on something you like. It makes it much easier. Mm -hmm. So I choose projects based on people I like and projects I like. Uh, and that's, that's been everything. But yes, there are, you will see media threads in there. You will see consumer. I tend to be more interested in consumer products because I naturally um, like or don't like them rather than business to business. Although some of the med tech stuff is B2B. But there I'm doing it because I like the founder and I like what she's doing and what her team is doing. So... Um, those are the threads. It's the people I choose and maybe a bit more consumer media than other things.
from all of that that you are saying, I very much wonder how you personally define success for yourself. I think we all travel a path in life, which, whether we know it or not, is to a degree about how we develop as people, as individuals. I think someone, I, I saw something on Facebook recently that someone said that um, it's sad that um, just as we're starting to work everything out, we then die. And I, and, I, and I don't know why that is, because unless you're a great writer, you, very few people pass this on to many people, hopefully your family. But it's true that I think, um, I hope, oh, I think, I hope that I become a better person every year because I learn more and I learn more about myself. So I think a lot of it, success, if I can go to sleep at night happy, if I can go to sleep without regrets, if I can go to sleep and, and sleep peacefully without worrying, I think that's a plus. Um, I've been lucky that I've been relatively successful in um, financial terms, which gives me choices about stuff, but it isn't the money. It's that I feel that I've done something, that I've done something that helps me be a better person, that helps me learn. That sounds very sanctimonious. It, it just, it comes across as, it, it, it's not what I mean. I genuinely think that um, because I'm happier in my own skin, that's a success to me. There were periods in my life when I wasn't, that I didn't know why I was angry or unhappy. Um, you know, I'm, I'm lucky. I'm happily married. I've got two great girls doing cool things. One of them's flying off to New York to compete in a, um, uh, venture competition in New York with a sustainable food startup. Another was about to join a, a new firm having left, um, an investment bank. So I'm, I'm, and I'm lucky the, the, all the key elements and we're all healthy at the moment. Um, so, uh, all of those things, you know, we're, we're a lucky bunch of people. Uh, but I, I feel that success is about going to sleep happy and comfortable. And so I think that's about learning and about being a, um, the person that you think you should be. And, um, at the same time, having an impact on other people, which again, makes you feel good about yourself. So, you know, you, 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 it's funny, but, but helping other people is in a way selfish because you makes yourself feel good because people are happy that you've done things. So, um, that's success. Can you go to sleep at night happy? I think that's a beautiful way to, to end our conversation. And I feel very successful to have the privilege to spend so much time with an interesting person like you. Uh, thank you very much for spending your time for this conversation. It was a great pleasure. And um, I hope to continue soon. Thank you, Christian. I, I'm, I'm happy to have been here. I've enjoyed chatting with you and I enjoyed meeting you when we first met. And I hope you get to um, meet um, lots of interesting people with different viewpoints because that's how we learn in life. And I look forward to hearing what your path looks like. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you had a good and insightful time listening to this conversation with Ian Charles Stewart. You can find more about topics like digital transformation from people out of Silicon Valley, or the decision-making frameworks of highly successful investors, as well as more about leadership or creativity techniques on the Sparker blog and podcast. Simply visit the website sparker.ch slash blog. That is S-P-A-R-K-R dot C-H slash blog. And there you will find all the episodes of the Sparker podcast, where I uncover the thought processes and mindsets of amazing people to make it accessible for you. With that said, I wish you a great rest of the day and talk to you soon 
on the next episode of the Sparkle Podcast. Mm-hmm.